and talked to Job, harassed Job, and they've kind of given up. And then all of a sudden, oh, great, here's a new guy on the scene, you know. Let's see what, what he has to say. And, and you might think, this guy, wow, he, he came in like a gangbuster here, you know. He's a, a young buck, and he, you, you got to give him credit. He, he waited for the others to do their spiel, and, and he shows up on the scene, and it's kind of guns a-blazing. I mean, he didn't, he didn't mince words, and, and it's interesting, the conflicting views that you get about Elihu, and um, he was the last friend of Job's to speak. And, and it's interesting, in, in the book of Job, sometimes we would look at it and say, this book could have been a lot shorter. They could have summarized all this and, and left some of this out. But God has a purpose for all of it. And really, Elihu's uh, discourse that he gives here in chapters 32, really on through um, chapter 37, is, is really a transition between the discourses of Job's three friends and then the discourse that God gives. It's, it's really not more of the same of the three friends. It is shifting gears, and we'll get in and look at that here in a moment, but it is a transition to God's response to Job. And interestingly, in all our other times when someone would speak, Job's friends would speak, then Job would have an answer. And he'd respond. In this case, Job never responds. He never responded to Elihu. And you might say, well, he just considered him a nutcase and not even worth his breath. Or he may, have, he may have been challenged by what he said. At any rate, um, Job did not answer him. Um, he is upset in chapter 32, beginning at the very beginning. You read four times in the first five verses about the wrath of Elihu. And and he's upset one with Job in verse 2 because Job justified himself rather than justifying God. So he was upset about that. Job, you're here justifying yourself rather than justifying God. There's a problem here with that. Then He's also upset with his three friends. Verse 3, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. They had no answer for Job and yet they condemned Job. So he's upset with Job because Job is justifying himself before God. And he's upset with his three friends because they didn't really... Um, didn't really help Job, and yet they were condemning him. 
it's, it's an interesting thing. We'll look at it more when we get there. But if you turn to Job chapter 42, God in answering Job and in answering Job's friends Notice Job 42 and verse 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Now notice what he said. God's wrath was aroused against Eliphaz and his two friends. That's the first three friends of the book of Job. His wrath was not aroused against Elihu, who we're studying in chapters 32 through 37. All that to say it's easy for us to lump all the friends of Job together. God specifically zeroed in on the three first three friends and said, I'm upset with you guys because you didn't give Job right counsel. But he never said that about Elihu. Even though Elihu was impulsive, he was passionate, at times he was rude, there were times he was even in air. He quoted Job as saying, you said you are pure, you are innocent, you are without transgression. Job never said that. He said he was blameless before God, but Even in all of that, when he comes across maybe as, um, could be at sometimes disrespectful, he said to Job in here, Job, you are not wise. Even in all that, God did not rebuke him and, and he saw fit to record this in the eternal word of God. And Elihu's basic premise to Job was that Job's response to the problem was the problem. Job's response was not, as his other friends had said, this problem is here because of your sin. Elihu's basic premise is this problem is causing you to sin. And we'll get in and look at it. But as in Job's case, and none of us have ever faced anything like Job has faced, and we never will face anything like Job faced. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, most people don't have ten kids. Most people don't have the millions of dollars that he had. Um, most people don't have the standing in their community that he had. We're not Job. But in the midst of difficulties in life, we have very similar, similar characteristics and temptations. And in the midst of difficulties in life, Job came to think that God is against me. You don't need to raise your hands, but many of us at least have thought 
at times, God is against me. Notice in chapter 33, he's quoting Job, and we said, verse 9, I am pure without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no iniquity. Yet he finds occasion against me, he counts me as his enemy, he puts my feet in stocks, he watches all my paths. Job maintained that he had a clear conscience. And with a clear conscience, all these things that are happening to him must mean that God is against him. It's easy for us to believe that. And yet, Elihu goes on and he gives a discourse that he believed the suffering was intended to teach us something about God and something about ourselves. And in the midst of a trial is a time of great testing and great temptation that begins in our thought life and it can manifest itself then in thoughts that drive us away from the heart of God and from the nature of God. And in this case, Job was tempted to believe God treats me as though I am his enemy. I'm, I'm locked up in stocks. He counts me as, as an enemy. And, and Elihu goes on, and we won't go into great detail, but in verse 12 you notice, he says, Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or another, yet man does not perceive it. So he rebukes Job. He says, you are not right in this. There's no way you're right in this. And who are we to contend with God and say that he is against me? Um, He said, God answers us and many times we don't perceive it. But he said, God owes no man anything, including accountability of God answering to us. And he went on and said that God speaks to us in various ways. But he's dealing with the heart of chapter 33 with Job's belief, God is against me. You know, once once we give in to this victim mentality, especially in relation to God is against me, we then are open up to all the attacks of Satan. And this is exactly what Satan used in the Garden of Eden. God is keeping something great back from you. He knows if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. So God is against you. He's keeping something back. You know, it's, it's too easy for us to fall into this trap. 
A week from Tuesday, we'll be having uh, our Thanksgiving praise service, as I mentioned before. And so, someone may get up and say, I just praise God this last year. He did this and this and this. And you may be sitting there thinking, this last year was really hard. And this and this and this went wrong. And Satan jumps right on it and says, God's got something against you. And somebody else gets up and says, I just praise God that He's blessed us with this. And, and, and you might be sitting there, my whole family's a disaster right now. God must have something against me. And it is very, very important that we understand the nature and character of God. And Elihu goes in and deals with this. And we'll touch on some more of these things as we go on. But to think God is against me or to think other people are more favored than me is to fall into the trap of Satan, to fall into the trap of comparison, and to fall into the trap of being short-sighted. So, in chapter 33, he deals with this aspect, God is against me. But there's another temptation that is faced. In, in chapter 34, he goes on and deals with it. And verse 5 For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. So he goes into this aspect. The second temptation is that God is unjust. Job's insistence that he was just insinuates that God is not just. I'm pure. I'm blameless, rather. I have a clear conscience. And look what is happening in my life. This, this does not seem right. It does not show forth justice from my perspective. And it is an affront to God when we think that. And in Job 34... Elihu is is dealing with this and he's building a case to say, Job, it wasn't sin that caused the suffering. It's suffering that is causing a bad response out of you. And in Job 34 and verse 17, look at verse 16. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is the most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands, and in a moment they die in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without hand. He's saying, Job, who are you to call God unjust? 
He treats the rich and the poor in the same way. He says, who are we to say to the king, you are not right in this manner, you are worthless. And if you turn to Job chapter 40 and verse 8, God says the same thing to Job. Job 40 and verse 8, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Are you saying that I am not just in order to justify you? So he's saying to say God is unjust is wrong. And yet in the midst of suffering... We respond by questioning, accusing, or asserting our rights before God. And we have forgotten that God created us. And he goes into that in this chapter. We forget that God is the ruler. He is sovereign. So we don't have a right to know all the answers to why we're suffering. God is sovereign And we must depend on Him for knowledge in order to understand what He wants us to do. The answer to the problem of pain and suffering cannot be at the expense of God's character. In other words, an answer to the problem of pain and suffering cannot be there's a problem with God. It can't be. There's no... There's no blemish in God's character. And to say God is against me and to say God is unjust is to falsely accuse God. And yet we're prone to do that. We we struggle at doing right and living right and doing the right thing and we may see someone that could care less about doing the right thing And they may seem to prosper from our viewpoint more than we do. And we think, this just isn't right. We may be tempted to say, it it doesn't pay to serve God. God isn't just. And yet that is an attack on the very character and nature of God. As believers... Much more than Job and any of his friends did as believers, we know the character of God because it was revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. We, we read that the reason he came into the world was to reveal the Father. So we're standing on this side of Jesus And we know much more the character of God than Job and his friends that stood on this side of Jesus. They didn't have the completed word like we have. They didn't have the life of Jesus Christ. And yet the same attack takes place. God, you're against me. And God, you're not just. This isn't right, God. This isn't right. And you better do something about this. The character of God is noble. It is true. It is right in every detail. And His authority is not based on 
blind, raw power. His authority is based on the worthiness of God. I stand, I stand in awe of you. It's the character and nature of God. And so it's important for us to to understand that. So, two temptations. God is against me. God is unjust. And the third one then is, nothing matters. Notice what Job said in Job 34 and verse 6. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is uncurable, though I am without transgression. Notice what he says. My wound is incurable. Verse 9. For he said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Here here I come. There's no hope for me. My wound, my pain, is. there's no cure for it. And... All that I've done for God, it profits me nothing. So, nothing matters. And you fall into one side, fatalism. My number is up. I have to bow to the power that be, whether I like it or not. I don't know that power, but it is greater than I am, so I have to submit. That's a fatalistic approach to God. That, believe it or not, many Christians have come because they've been disappointed with what God's done or not done in their life, and they say, well, it really doesn't matter what I do because God's going to do whatever He wants anyway, and that's it. On the other side of the spectrum is the submission... Not fatalistically of, of just giving up, but the submission of faith. I do know the power of God. I do know the character of God. I do know the nature of God. And God is always good. And although His ways are not seen by me right now, I submit to Him because I love Him. Because He has rescued me from the lake of fire through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I submit to Him even though I don't see it. And I know He's not against me. And I know He's just in all He does. And I know what I do does matter. And those are the extremes. Fatalism. And, and many Christians have just resolved, okay, whatever happens, happens, and I just hope we get to heaven soon. And, and they're not walking by faith, and they're not walking in the nature and character of God. So, I, I quickly want to make several applications from... From these, And you'll get in, hopefully you've got into these chapters much more this week. And tonight you will in your studies. But number one, God writes the last chapter. Righteousness will be rewarded 
justice will be brought. We are, we are looking at Job before the end. We know how it ends. God wrote the last chapter. But there are many people that have lived lives of faith, and in this life, it looks like it didn't end well. They were beheaded. They were sawn asunder. They died in prison. But that's not the last chapter. God is the one that writes the last chapter through eternity. And we must remember that even a cup of cold water given in God's name will be rewarded. And there is justice with God. And He will bring justice. And every wrong that is done... Every lie that has been spoken, God will reveal the truth. And we must remember that God writes the last chapter. Secondly, we cannot know and we don't need to know exactly what God is doing in our lives. God didn't say He'd he'd give us this long road map and point out all the places where we're going to be and all the things that He's going to be doing in our lives, He says, I'll tell you the next step. Number one, we cannot know because God is infinite. We cannot know all His workings. And we don't need to know. But everything He has given us is all that we need for life and godliness. We're never going to be able to stand before God and say, God, you didn't supply me with enough wisdom or strength or direction or encouragement, so that's why I couldn't do this. No, everything we need, He's he's given to us. So, we need to rest in the fact that um, we cannot know and we don't need to know exactly what God is doing in our lives, to be able to explain it all. But we do know the next step. God always gives us that. Thirdly, we must rest in the character of God and never doubt it. And we must, we must develop a... I, wa- I was going to say a system of belief... I don't want it to be like a system. We must personally hammer out in our lives what we really believe about God. So that in the midst of darkness, no, this is what I believe about God based on His Word. We've we've shared before, but these are so important. And and they're to be able to help jumpstart you. Um, I believe it was Jim Berg that that put these together. Ten timeless truths about God. He is always wise in what He does. Always. And you don't need to write these down. They're available on the back under the clock in this. And and I just... But these are things that we we can't question the character of God. He is always trustworthy. He is always the same... He is always in control. He is always present with me. He always gives the grace I need. 
He always loves me personally. He will always meet my genuine needs. He will always forgive my sin. He is always up to something good in my life. Ten things. Honestly, um, again, God challenged me. I need to be, I need to be memorizing those things so that in the midst of darkness, when I don't have a phone or a computer or the Bible or anything else, I can go through and say, but I know God is always wise and God is always something up to something good in my life and God always provides every need. We must rest in the character of God and never doubt it. Fourthly, I must seek to learn what God is teaching me about himself and myself. In the midst of suffering, okay, God, what are you teaching me about you? And what are you teaching me about myself? We're going to see as we go on with Job, God is teaching Job a lot about himself, about God, and about Job himself. But in every situation, our, our first thought should be, God, what are, you, what are you revealing to me about yourself? And God, what are you showing about me? And fifthly, the issue is not our circumstances, but our response to our circumstances. We can get bent all out of shape about, about circumstances that might be happening. We'd better be strengthening our faith so that we can respond right in whatever circumstances come our way. God desires to use everything in our lives to draw us to the very heart of God. Because He knows we were made for fellowship with Him. We were made for the heart of God. And, and it's not out of a, a cruel master, you're going to come love me. He knows it's, it's for our good. And he says, you're going to trust this. I'm, I'm going to allow that to fail you. And they all do. And I'm going to bring this so that the only place you can look is to me. Why does he do that? Because he knows that's the only answer for us. And we should not be caught up in our circumstances as much as what is my response to this circumstance? Does it drive me to the heart of God? Or does it make me think God is against me? God isn't just and nothing matters. Or does it make me run to God and say, God, you are my only hope. You are my only help. I'm trusting your perfect character and nature. And in you is my trust. We, we sang this morning, trust His Word. Every promise of His Word is true. Trust His Word. See, everything in life, God is using it to draw us to His heart. To some, He may be first of all using it to draw them to salvation. To realize, wow, nothing in this world satisfies. I can't do anything about my sin I need forgiveness and to know that only in Jesus Christ is there forgiveness of sin. 
But once you've trusted Christ, that doesn't mean your heart is knit with God's. God then is at work to mold and shape us to his image. Every circumstance God is using in our life to draw us to him. And what Elihu was trying to help Job to see is, Job, the issue is not why the suffering is here. The issue is your response to the suffering. And sure, Elihu had some rough edges here to take care of, but God used him to prepare Job for then God coming in and ministering. And we'll go on and see that. But suffering is only a blessing when we trust God and are obedient to Him. If we lack trust in God, suffering becomes meaningless and empty and frightening. And we see great fear in the world around us because there is no trust in God. And it comes back, if I can't If I don't trust him, I must not believe in his character. There is only one that you can trust, and that's God. Everyone and everything else will fail you. And and if you aren't beginning to see that in the world that we live in today, I'm not sure when you will see it. I mean, the lies and deceptions that are there, and... Yet we must be prepared because very difficult times may come in life. And we must never let our mind go, God must be against me. Or God isn't just. Why is this happening to me? And I know that person. And it seems like things are going well with them. That isn't just of God. God writes the last chapter. And I believe too many Christians have just drawn back and said, well, I'm in it for the ride. Nothing really matters. Doesn't really matter if I pray. Doesn't really matter if I serve. God's going to do what He wants anyway. Doesn't really matter. And someday they'll find out that it does matter. Because... Every deed done for the glory of God will be rewarded. And that which burns in the fire, we will suffer loss. That which was temporal will be gone. And it does matter. God is for you. God is just. And every thought, word, attitude, and action in our life matters. Because God is God. And He will bring justice and He will make things right. And He is using all these things to try to draw us to His very heart. Heavenly Father, I pray that Your Spirit would minister in our lives today to see the events that are going on in our lives in our community, in our nation, and in our world, that you're using it to try to draw hearts to your heart. 
And I pray if there's an individual here today that knows that their sin is separating them from you, I pray that the conviction of your spirit would draw them to you through Jesus Christ and that they could know that their sins are forgiven by calling upon you to forgive their sins. Lord, I pray for every believer here. Undoubtedly, there are people here, and I'm sure nearly everyone here has at some time or another thought, well, I'm not on the top notch with God. Or maybe even, why does God not like me? Lord, forgive us for questioning your character. And I pray that we would stand in the truth of your word, that we would stand in your justice. And Lord, I pray whatever circumstances we are facing today, or whatever may come our way, that we would respond in a manner by your grace that glorifies you. So Lord, I pray that we would trust you and to be able to see your power work and to trust you to write the last chapter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.